Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 30. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow." I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Grass withers, the flower fades, word of our God stands forever. So Paul here in this section this morning, we've been working through the book of Philippians. We're now finishing up this second chapter. But he's been working on and still working on this attitude of those in the church for their their mutual joy in the magnifying of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's been working over these first two chapters that the recipients of this letter, those who read this letter, that they would be unified around their partnership in the gospel, that they'd be glad and joyous over the advance of the gospel in all circumstances, that their confidence in in having Christ, that Christ is such gain, that their confidence in having the gain of Christ is, is large, their confidence in that as gain would be big among them, and that their humility would grow in the gift of receiving the gospel. This morning we hear Paul's admonition to continue in their pursuit of this enjoyment of the gospel 
by laying out tangible ways to provoke joy in the gospel. And then he sets out before us three examples of those who have found themselves glad in the giving of themselves for the joy of the gospel. So we're going to talk this morning, this, this section of, of what is going on and, and, and encouraging them to find their joy in the gospel, what this looks like, and then the three examples of, of these men that he lays before us. But the question I have for you this morning is, is this. Is the gospel something you, you once receive and then move on from? Sometimes we view the gospel message of, of placing your faith in Jesus Christ as some sort of like front door to religious faith, front door to Christianity. And once you've checked that box off, then you go off and you, you start doing all, all the things Christians are supposed to do. And they're very disconnected realities. It's like the, uh, the gospel message of what Christ has done for you is the, is the starting gun that is fired, that then you go off and, and then you move on from the gospel message. You might think something in your head like, yeah, I remember I, I walked the aisle as a kid or I signed a card or I got baptized. Yeah, I, I know I, I accepted the gospel way back when or whatever. And, and, and now, now what? Um, we emphasize the gospel or I try to here every Sunday make much of the work of Christ. And do you hear that and think, okay, Darren, yes, I've got that. What now? What, what, ne- what, what next? But what we see from this passage is that salvation, this gospel message, is not some box you just check and then move on from. It is more like it is, it is the hub of a wheel that you constantly tie everything back to. It is a present, ongoing reality, the gospel message that you are constantly to be grounding yourself in. But before we get into that, I want to mess this order up a little bit. I want to look at these examples of these three individuals first. Before we get into verses 13 through 16, I want to look at these three men. The three men that Paul mentions are himself, Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. That's exactly how you say that. I'm confident. Epaphroditus. You all knew that though, didn't you? Epaphroditus is the, are these three men that Paul lays out before us. These examples of what it looks like when the, when the gospel has satisfied you. What, is it, what does a Christian life look like that has been satisfied in the gospel? And Paul says in verses 17 through 18 that, that even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. That language, we kind of lose the, what he's taught, but an, an, a sacrifice and an offering is a, is a death. What Paul is talking about, you remember earlier from in chapter 1, he's, he's struggling with this issue of, is he going to remain, which means, which means further ministry to the Philippians, or is he going to depart and be with Christ, which he says is far better. He says, I'd rather depart and be with Christ, but it's more necessary on your account that I remain and continue with you all. And he's wrestling with this issue, am I going to die and go be with Christ, which is great, or am I going to remain and minister to all of you? He's kind of fighting this issue. But he's talking about the possibility of his death. To be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of their faith, even if that happens, what does Paul say he's going to do? Even if I am to die, even if 
ministry to you cost me my life, he says, I am glad and rejoice with you all. There is this radical selflessness that has taken hold of Paul. That if the gospel advances, if the name of Jesus Christ is magnified and it means the expense of his life, he rejoices because Christ is being made much of. Because the gospel message is going forward. There is this radical selflessness that the world does not, in Paul's mind, the world does not revolve around him and him getting his way. The world revolves, it's a very theocentric, God-centered world. It revolves around Him. And what is most important and what He is most glad in is that this gospel would go forward, even if it costs Him His life. He's not just theoretically convinced of the high value of Jesus Christ, like mental assent or He gives verbal affirmation. Jesus is, you know, very important. He very tangibly is convinced and the the value of Christ has so consumed his life that he is content for it to be spent, his life to be spent for the advantage of others and their knowing and having Jesus Christ. That's Paul. Look at Timothy. On down verses 19 through 24, there's this example of Timothy. He's going to send Timothy. Timothy, what we find, is a disciple of um, Paul's. You know there's the books First and Second Timothy. They're two of the three pastoral epistles because Timothy later is sent to Ephesus to um, pastor the church at Ephesus. But he, we, he meets up with Paul in the book of Acts. You find he runs into Timothy. And he's this disciple that Paul sends around on different missionary journeys and he accomplishes different purposes for Paul. And here Paul is going to be sending Timothy to the Philippian church soon. Why? Why is he going to send Timothy? He says in verse 20, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your Welfare. Paul is concerned, or Timothy is concerned. The reason why Paul is sending Timothy is because Timothy's priority, Timothy's concern is for their welfare, not his own. He says, verse 22, or verse 21, for they all, this is all the others that are out there. He mentions earlier in chapter 1, if you want to go back and read the book, all these people who are preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry, thinking to afflict Paul in his imprisonment. That's earlier in chapter 1. But all of those people, they are concerned, they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But he says in verse 22, but you know of Timothy's proven worth. What he's meaning is that this, we, this Paul chooses Timothy and he says he has to because he has no one like Timothy who will be genuinely concerned for their welfare. Timothy will be there not to seek his own interests, but those of Jesus Christ. He is a man whose desire and will is for the work of God to be accomplished. These men, the examples they are setting for what Christianity looks like is astonishing. He's going to show up and his concern is not for himself, not for his own advantage, not for his own welfare, but that the Philippian church would be drawn nearer to Christ, that they would be effectively ministered, that they would be uh, told the gospel and brought into this joy that is found in the gospel. Paul, radical selflessness, the gospel producing in them this selflessness. Timothy, radical selflessness. And then Epaphroditus, 
Epaphroditus is actually from the Philippian church, right? He's, he's sent to Paul where he's in prison. And he's going to send Epaphroditus back to them. And the reason why is because um, Epaphroditus has come kind of doing grunt work, really. He's got a gift for Paul from the Philippians. He's, a, he's just, dare I say it, he's kind of like a mailman. I mean, do you get much more humble than like a mailman? He's kind of just bringing a gift to, to the Philippian church. He's not the evangelist. He's not this incredible whatever. He's just bringing a delivery to Paul. And, and what happens? Well, not much other than he just basically almost dies from this humble service to, for the Philippian church to Paul. He almost loses his life through sickness. He says he's sending to them because Epaphroditus is concerned. He's, verse 26, he's been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, verse 27, he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, Paul says, lest he should have sorrow upon sorrow. This man, in completing very humble service for the Philippian church, he says he does this because he is, um, he's, at verse 30, he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Here is this man, not thinking of his own health even, not thinking of what is best for his physical body, counting himself of, as of little value, as of even no value, in comparison to finishing the, the mission that God had for them, the completing of the Philippian church's service to Paul. He was willing to part with his own life even to complete what was lacking in the Philippian service to him. You read these three examples, where is this breed of Christianity today? Where is this kind of Christian today? I, I say this with all the love in my heart for my generation and, and my, my country and, and what we're about here. But we are, at one level, shockingly some of the most self-consumed, self-concerned, and self-absorbed people. We are not theocentric. We are not God-centered. We are me-centric. We are self-centric. The world revolves around us. And what we are seeking for more than anything is our own desires. What do I want to see accomplished? What do I want to have happen? And I base my decisions upon what I do tomorrow or the next day or this evening or whatever, what friends I pursue, what neighbors I'm nice to, what words come out of my mouth, what every action that I take is determined upon my own desires, my own in inclinations, my own wishes. We are a, uh, a self-consumed culture. And if we put, and that's, that's, I'm not trying to be rude, but that's what passes for Christianity today. Christianity is, I put a label on it of, I love Jesus. But if we really look at a lot of our motives, they are not these examples of Christianity that says, I, I, I take the name of Christian, I, I take on the title of Jesus is Lord, but really when it comes to the practical application of my life, kind of what, what I want to do is what's kind of Lord. Not these men. Not these men. 
They, they say Jesus is Lord and they count their lives as of no value in comparison to the value of Christ. Giving up their lives, laying down their lives, giving up reputation, giving up their own desires and their own interests for the service that, that God's will and God's work would go forward. And they do all of this. Ours is a Christianity of convenience. Theirs is a Christianity of conviction. They do all of this. Look at verse chapter... Now let's jump back up into the beginning part of the passage. Chapter 2 verse 14. They do all these things without grumbling or disputing. Or some translations say complaining. They do all of these things without grumbling or complaining. All things. Think of what these men have gone through. Paphroditus almost losing his life. Where's Paul right now? He's in jail. Where's Timothy? He's going to be sent to a church to focus on their desires and their needs and putting all of his desires and his own needs and interests on the back burner in service to them. And they do it what? They do all things without grumbling or complaining. Yet, they have such a high view of the gospel work that they're involved in that it takes all the wind out of their complain bag. It's like you've got your bagpipes. It's a big complain bag. And, and, and somehow their joy in the gospel, their, their view of what they have gained in Christ, which is what we'll get to next week more in chapter 3, but their view of what they have gained in Christ has emptied their complain bag out. They got no more wind in this complaint bag because they see themselves of having gained something so incredible, so valuable, that no amount of backseat to their own life can, can take away this joy of putting Christ at the center of everything, of living the gospel-centered life. We today have such an overactive complaint bag that we've got tendonitis and, or, or breaking rotator cuffs from pumping our complaint bag so much because, unlike these men, instead of having the gospel with the focus and putting our own interests to the back, we got our interests on the front burner on full boil. Instead of, and, and, and as a result, the joy in the gospel is gone. What a picture these men are of Self-sacrificial love in service to the gospel. The church needs a resurgence of this kind of Christianity. But how do they get there? Okay? So that's what that's these, these men are. But are they just superhuman men? I mean, let's be honest. Paul, I mean, he wrote two-thirds of the new two-thirds of the letters of the New Testament. That ain't none of us, because God ceased revelation. But uh, that isn't any of us doing that anymore. But Timothy, Epaphroditus, no, they're just, they're just superhuman men. That's not, that's not fair. I'm not them. Well, I think Paul puts these examples here for a reason. And he follows it with this passage that we have earlier in verses 12 through 16. He, he's saying these verses 12 and through 16 give fuel to these examples. These men live this way because of what has flown to them, flowed to them from verses 12 through 16. They are not superhuman specimens. They are ordinary sinners who have been gripped by the gospel of God. So it brings us to our main idea this morning, which is that our work is fueled by holding fast to the work that has been fulfilled. Our work 
What we are to do, our obedience, our sanctification, our work for Christ, our mission, our joy in Him, our work is fueled by holding fast to the work that has been fulfilled. And we see this, I think, in verses 12 through 16. Back here at the beginning of our passage from this morning. We see that these three examples are all men who have been working out their salvation as God is working it in them. Paul makes this, it's a very interesting statement. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more so in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For, as a because statement, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work his good pleasure. How do we work out our salvation is this we take our salvation take it to the gym and we make it do bench presses how, how do you work out your salvation what's going to be put it on a treadmill or something how do we work out our salvation well paul says it he says verse beginning of verse 12 therefore my beloved as you have always obeyed so now continue in this doing what working out your salvation they are to be working out their salvation now that might Kind of make a, does that cause a knee-jerk reaction to anyone? Wait a second, Darren. We've just been reading through Galatians on Sunday mornings, and we know salvation has nothing to do with works. How can Paul say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Galatians tells us clearly, we are not saved by works of the law. For by flesh, by, by works of the law, no man will be saved. We are saved by grace through faith in the work of Jesus Christ alone. Man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Read the book of Galatians, couldn't be plainer. So is Paul forgotten? He's, you know, Galatians and Philippians, are they not working? What's going on here? What is Paul talking about when he says, work out your own salvation? He is speaking about this ongoing salvation that occurs in a believer's life that we call sanctification. He's not talking about justification. So these are, I know they're church terms. Forgive me. We're good. Try to learn some church terms. Does anybody know what a venti is? Anybody know what a venti is? No, no one does. Huh? Large? It's large. So you go to Starbucks. If you go to Starbucks and you order a venti, no one knows what a venti means. But since you know you go to Starbucks and you order a venti because they make you learn, it stands for 20. It's Italian or something for 20. Venti. We learn language at Starbucks while you're at church. Learn some language. Okay? Justification. Sanctification. Justification is the legal declaration of made righteous that God gives to a person upon their repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. They are justified. They are made righteous in God's sight. It is a legal declaration adopted into the family of God. That is justification. It is a once for all declaration upon a sinner as they repent and look to Christ, trusting in Him. Justification. Justified by faith. Sanctification is growth in godliness. It is the continuing work of the Holy Spirit to make you like Christ. It's the, we know what to sanctify something is. Sanctification is, is the being made holy, being made more like Christ. And so when Paul speaks here of working out your own salvation, it is not speaking about work for your justification. If you have trusted in Christ, your justification is a settled reality. 
Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have been made righteous. There is no more condemnation. Justification has happened for the one who has repented of their sin and trusted in Christ. But this working out of your salvation is about sanctification. There is no work. This is the justification. There is no work by the sinner. It is the work of God in the life of a sinner. Yet this doesn't mean that the Christian life is one free from labor. You're not working for your justification, but you absolutely are working for your sanctification. But even that work, look, this is amazing that God does, says, does this. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Even the hard work that a Christian does in making choices of obedience, a Holy Spirit-helped sanctification, a growing in godliness, it is a work of God's grace as we work out that which God has worked in us. Sanctification is the work of sanctifying us, making us holy, setting us apart for God. Which brings us back to the question of how you view the gospel. Is it some front door... That, okay, I checked this box. Now i got to go out and start doing all these things. Sanctification is a constant remembering of what Christ has done. And a growth in godliness that is always connected to this joy in the gospel. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The gospel is not merely some front door that you pass through on into the bigger things of God. Rather, the gospel of Jesus Christ is to be viewed as the central hub from which all of the Christian life flows from. We never disconnect from the reality of the work of God in us. And if we do, then if you take the hub out of the wheel, the wheel falls apart. Instead, God works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is one of the reasons why true Christianity is such a killer to our modern views of humanity and meaning. We are obsessed with discovering our own wills. What do you want in life? What do you enjoy? What gives you meaning and purpose? What do you desire? And in contrast to the sinful individual looking deep within their sinful self to discover what self-serving sinful desires they have, Christianity speaks of a life that God has working in you to produce in you a desire for His will and for His good pleasure. That's what the gospel secures in you. So practically, what does this look like? We've seen that it's obedience, but obedience to what? Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world doing what? Verse 16, holding fast to the word of life. Among whom you shine in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. How are these men doing it? That's the question we're trying to get at. These three guys, how are they doing this? Are they superhuman? They are men who are holding fast to the word of life. What is this word of life? What is this word of life? Holding fast 
to the word of life. Most commentators that I read speak of that word of life being the whole of Christian scripture. That this is the word of God is the word of life. Since he is life itself and he gives to everything life and breath and, and, and meaning. He is the word of life. John in his gospel records Peter saying about Jesus. Jesus says, do you want to depart from us also? And Peter says, to who else will we go to? You alone, Peter says, have the words of life. And later in his first epistle, John describes Jesus himself as revealing the word of life. However you want to specifically define it, it is clear the scriptures are the word of life. This is the word that brings life to the Christian, that reveals to us who God is. But another way to talk about the word of life would be to say all that this book points to. You could boil it down to a few great big realities, right? The meta-narrative of what God is doing, who God is, what has happened, what he did to redeem it, and how he's going to wrap all things up. Scripture tells us God created everything that is. God made it all. He made it all for his own glory. And what happened? Mankind fell. We rebelled. Adam and Eve, we are at sin, at war with God. We did not want him to be our king and we rebelled and we fell. And it plunged us under his wrath, at war with God. And what does God do? He doesn't wipe his hands and just send us off. In his abundant mercy, he sends his son puts on flesh, lives the righteous life we all should have lived but didn't, dies the death that we all deserve on the cross so that everyone sitting in this room this morning, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, confessing themselves, I am a sinner. I do deserve your wrath and your justice. I have rebelled against you. But I'm looking to your son who lived the life His righteousness can now be credited to me because he took my punishment on the cross. Salvation then comes to you. God created it all. We rebelled and fell. Christ came and redeemed it all. And Christ is coming again to restore and renew all things. One day, everything will be renewed. This is the word of life. This reality of who God is. Who we are and what we have done. What Christ has done. What God has done in Christ to bring us back to Him. And the promised future hope of how Christ will one day return. And wipe out all sin and sickness and suffering and death. And we will be forever with Him in the fullness of His joy. This is the word of life. And these three men, the the reason why they are able to put themselves in the back burner. Not live for their own desires, but for those of Christ. Because they are holding fast to this word of life. This is what they hold fast to. They hold fast to the word of life. Holding fast also can mean holding forth. They are, they are treasuring it and displaying it. This is, this is their treasure. They are holding it and they are displaying it. This is the treasure that they have. Holding fast to the word of life. It's, it's so easy to look around in life and, and see many things to grumble and complain about. I don't think I have to sell anybody on that. <laughs> Convince you this morning there are many things to look at and grumble and complain about. It's so easy to look at what we would like to see done in our families, in our own selves, and, and see the failures and grumble and complain. It's easy to look at the church, see all the work that needs to be done and grumble. But you can only do so when you have lost your grip on the word of life. Do you think God has forgotten his purposes? 
He hasn't. Do you think God has forgotten you? It's impossible. Do you think God can be stopped in what he has set out to accomplish? No. He can't. We come to the communion table. We do this every week here. We do this to hold fast to the word of life. Hold forth our corporate hope in the word of life. This, the table, is a meal of remembrance of the work that God has done and the promise of an ongoing work that will not abandon us, but work in us, sanctifying us and bringing us all the way home as we work out those things by the help of the Holy Spirit. As we come this morning to the communion table, may God continue his work in us as we hold fast to the word of life. Holding fast to the the promised future hope that we find in Jesus Christ alone. May God continue this work in us. And may our work be fueled by remembering and holding fast to the work that has been fulfilled. Holding fast, we work, our work is fueled by holding fast to the work that has been fulfilled and all that Christ has done for us and God has accomplished and will complete. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would give us eyes to see this word of life, this glorious good news of the gospel, this who you are, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who has sent his son, the God who has put on flesh, who has taken the sins of the world. God, I pray that you give us eyes to see it this word of life, that we would be quick to repent, turn from ourselves, trust in you, that forgiveness could come, that the word of life would dwell in us so that we can look out at the future, look out at what tomorrow holds, and know that in gaining Christ, we have gained something nothing in this world can take away. And therefore, our hope and security, peace and joy is immovable, found in you and in you alone. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.